0: Welcome to the most listened to golf in the world, the fairways of life show, on air, online, and around the world.
1: With the most candid interviews.
0: We did it, we did it together, and uh, it's just so exciting for me to just be a part of this with them, with all the 11 other players. It's truly an experience that I will cherish forever. Taking you beyond the ropes. Whatever you think is possible for you, or, or even what's not possible, you know, beyond your wildest dreams, go for it. You know, just go for it and think big and believe in yourself and don't let anyone tell you that you can't do anything. Unforgettable stories.
1: He's hit some putts with it, so he gets his phone out and he just takes a picture of the grip and down the putter. And doesn't
0: say anything and he just pings it to Tiger. And of course Tiger pinged him right back, like, what in
1: the (laughs) hell are you doing with my putter? Do not (laughs) touch that putter. (laughs) A bridge to the past.
0: Years and years from now, Mr. Palmer, what do you want the legacy of Arnold Palmer to be?
1: Well, uh, I suppose that just that I have made a contribution to the game to help make it a little better.
0: Here's your host, New York Times bestselling author and Golf Channel's Matt Adams. Hey everybody, welcome to the program. Hope you guys are doing okay. Hope the week has been going well for you so far and that you have the opportunity to enjoy the weekend. I know it's in this strange new reality that we're all living through right now. Mostly what I hope for everyone is that you're safe that your family is safe, that we're all continuing to do the things that we need to do to get on the other side of this thing. Because there is the sense, isn't it, that the other side is, is closer now. If, if not the, the end, then maybe the, the end of the beginning to channel Winston Churchill. So as I promised you this week, and it's going to happen today, we're going to feature an, nearly an hour interview coming up here that we had with doug sanders now doug sanders yes he he passed away a few days ago and he was one of the classics in the game a 20-time winner on the pga tour knocked on the door on a lot of major championships right probably most famously he's he's remembered for the one at the old course of st andrews in 1970 that he lost to jack nicholas when Jack Nicholas made a, a great putt at 18 in the playoff, ultimately to beat him. It's interesting, one of the, you know, as, as the pages of history tend to fall through the, through the cracks of the same, and, and one thing that happened in that playoff, particularly on the 18th hole that a lot of people forget, is that Jack Nicholas drove it through the 18th green. Think about that for a second. It's 1970. When he was playing with those t- tiny little forged blades and his golf ball, his particular one was a marshmallow and Jack Nicholas drove it through the green. So it's kind of funny when you think at least in the context of people complaining about length in the game. Now, uh, Jack Nicholas had length in the game. Then he was, he was that much before his time in terms of who he was and what he was capable of and how he played the game of golf. Uh, another thing that's just interesting as an aside, a few years ago when Martin Hawtrey was brought in to work on some of the bunkers and modifications at, at the old course, but one of them in particular was the road hole bunker. And traditionalists rose up in chorus. You know, you can't touch this. It was like when they put the new bunker, the new T on on 17 there at the old course, cause they put pushed it back across the road and people hated it. And I, I look at those things and go, well, a, a golf course is a living, breathing thing. Do you not think that the old course was, wasn't changed continuously over the course of its 600 years. And I'll give you an example. If you go to YouTube and you look up video highlights from the 1970 open at St. Andrews, one of the things you're going to see is the, the effort of Doug Sanders get up and down from the road hole bunker. And it's amazing because you see the height, the top of that bunker now, which is way up there, right? Players descend down into it. And back in 1970, from what I remember, it was about, you know, thigh to waist. It changes. And it was very ragged along the top and all the rest. It changes. That's what, That's the nature of golf courses. They're living, breathing entities. And they, they change over the years. has changed uh, with, with intent many times over the years. So it was probably almost six years ago now that I had an opportunity to get together with Doug Sanders. Did it on my own time. Didn't have anything to do with what I was doing, hosting a radio show at that time. It was outside of that, but I knew that I would be able to use it on my radio show as well because I own the content. But at the time, my objective was, and it's, it's very much, I think, in keeping with what our objective is right now at this moment, and that is to get a chance to speak to as many people as we can who have left a distinctive mark on the game of golf. And so we arranged this interview with Doug Sanders, and he agreed to it. And we, we, I remember searching. We were at the, the cavernous Orange County Convention Center in Orlando, Florida, and we were looking for a place that we could do the interview where we would have, you know, lack of distractions. And we found this big room. Door was open. Room was empty. I mean, massive room. I'm talking probably, you know, at least 50 feet by 50 feet. Big, huge, 24-foot high ceilings. It was clearly made for some kind of exhibition to be put in there in these huge events, but this particular room was unoccupied by anyone. There was, however, a, a, a couch and a couple of chairs. So we sat down, and I put the recording device. It was a digital uh, tape recorder. And I shouldn't even use the word tape because obviously didn't have any. It was digital. But I sat down on the table, and when you hear this interview, yeah, Tom just said, use your Walkman exactly. So I sat it down on the table, and you're going to hear this. When it, when it plays, you can hear the kind of how cavernous the sound Sounded like. We didn't have headsets on. We were talking to a microphone that was in front of us in this huge space. And then we had our conversation. I had not met Doug Sanders prior to this opportunity that we had. I found the man to be absolutely fascinating. And and you're going to hear this in the interview. It was equally as fascinating to me that the attributes that he is most remembered for now the peacock of the fairways as they called him his his incredibly brilliant array of of shoes many of which he would custom dye to to match his clothing right We're talking about hundreds and hundreds of pairs of shoes and he told me why he had all those shoes and and you're going to hear it but Because when he was young, he was so poor that he was barefoot. And having these fancy shoes was a mark to him of success. Just interesting, different time and place. Remember, he died in 86. And then I'll tell you what happened when the interview finished. Doug Sanders had had with him a roller, you know, pulled up pull the handle out, and roll it behind you like you were going to pack for staying at somebody's house overnight. I didn't think anything of it. People have stuff they're hauling around, you know. And And he zips it open and he pulls out a series of large, probably two inch width on the binder, three ring binders. And he proceeds to lay them in front of me, open each one, And page by page, he would go through and show me of their contents. And on each page, there was one or multiple photos and or artifacts. I'll explain what I mean by that in a second. But there were pictures with him and Jackie Gleason and and presidents and, you know, obviously other other actors, other players, other athletes, astronauts, etc., And he was showing me these. He would point and tell me a story of each. Fascinating. And when you hear that, I'm sure it causes one to wonder why? Why did he do that? And I can I can tell you as as we sit here and us then that he was not bragging. It was it wasn't about flaunting the lifestyle that he had and who he was and how big a star he was especially during those can imagine the the cultural currents of the 1960s that that he looked like the the NBC peacock on television as as in the latter half of that decade when the, when the television went from black and white to color well he was always in brilliant color but there was something in him that wanted he wanted the world to know. Not that I was the voice to the world. I was just one voice of the world. And one by one, he was going to let the world know. These artifacts that I was telling you about, he had underneath these, these, you know, because each page had plastic over it. I saw signed gloves. Again, signed by all these same celebrities and astronauts and other players. And he mentioned to me that he was writing to today's players, current stars, asking them to sign something and send him a little memento, glove, what have you. And he told me that he'd basically been told not to do it, to leave the players alone. And, you know, obviously I felt bad for him because... This man, even then, 80 years old, was clearly searching for, still, in my view, and maybe it's an unfair assessment, but it's just the observation I made looking into his eyes, he he was still searching for comfort in his own skin, which is why I think it was so important for him to hold on to the person that he was when he was at the height of his prowess and to remind the world this person here, this young man is me. I am him. Absolutely fascinating. So in tribute to the life of Doug Sanders, in tribute to what he accomplished on the golf course and what he accomplished in in the world of life, here is our long-form sit-down interview with one of the most fascinating men ever to play on tour. The path he forged in the game of golf was a distinctive one, and I dare say it's one that has never been forged before or since, called the peacock of the fairways for his stylish attire. His life could have been even more colorful than that indeed. I'm speaking, of course, of Doug Sanders' Uh, As much a man known for the way he looks, sometimes his golfing attributes are overlooked. Take, for example, in 1966, he won three times. He finished tied for fourth, tied for eighth, tied for second, and tied for sixth in that year's four major championships. Multiple second-place finishes in majors, a man with more than 20 professional wins. Doug Sanders is, in a word, unique.
1: Thank you, Matt. It's my pleasure to be here with you. Thank you, sir.
0: Your background, let's let's go, if you would allow, to the beginning. How did your path in life take you to the stage that was the highest tier of golf in the world?
1: Well, you would be surprised if I may start back a little long time ago. My mom and dad had to pick 100 pounds of cotton a day for a dollar. That's what the family lived on. My dad told me that during the Depression, he walked five miles in the morning and five miles back for 50 cents a day. Now, they also tell me a story about before I was born. My brother was four years of age, and my sister was three, lived on the farm, and when they brought the coal in, they just poured it out in the backyard. And he found a little thing that looked like a firecracker or something in it. And they told me that he was kidding my sister about shooting it with a firecracker. She ran into the kitchen and he lit it with a splinter but it wasn't a firecracker. It was a dynamite cap. It blew both of his eyes out and his fingers off. He was blind all of his life until 69 passed away. My other brother at 18 went into the Marine Corps later on in life, and a hand grenade blew his right arm off, and he died at a fairly young age. And I started walking the golf course two and a half miles with no shoes. I didn't have my own shoes until I was about 12. Hand me down, two lefts or two rights. Take the scissors and cut them out and put the tape and everything over them. But whenever we'd finished, the caddies weren't allowed to play. And there was only about five or six of us. Because you've got 25 cents for nine holes and 35 cents for 18 holes. But you normally just carried the bag along, you know, and they took the clubs out. You didn't have to do anything. But so I'd make a few nickels and dimes and looking for balls. But then we took around to the back, and the guys had some, a couple of wooden sticks in the holes, and we'd putt and chip and everything. And they beat me out of my money, and I'd walk up that road at night, two and a half miles back home, and the lightning bugs, they looked like ghosts. And I'd run maybe the last mile and go to sleep with my clothes on. Get up in the morning with the same clothes and walk back before daybreak and go to sleep sitting on on the, the stairs to look for balls. I didn't get tired of going up the road. I got tired of going up the road broke. And later on in life, I started chipping and putting, and they didn't know anything about it for about three years. Now I'm about, oh, 13. And the four of us worked all week long, made five dollars a piece. Cat in, and I says, "Come on, guys, let's go chip and putt." They says, "Come on, sucker, we didn't have any year money in a long time. Let's let's go, let's go do it." And that night, those lightning bugs they never looked like ghosts again when I walked up that road with those four five dollar bills in my pocket. <laughs> so I knew what it took was that burning desire, that killing instinct, that will to win, to be able to make something happen, and that's what I had. But I gotta tell you something other, it was one of the most exciting things I've ever done in my life. I went uptown and bought myself my new shoes. I'm walking down the street on the sidewalk there and I think everybody in the cars are looking out the window at my shoes and I'm trying to take my shoes and stick it out there a little further from the seat, you know. <laughs> I was so proud of my own shoes. So that started me off and then when I was about about that age the pro took a luck into me, Maurice Sutton, he was a pro there. and. I started chipping and putting. We didn't have a driving range, but he let me go down between a hole where the, the guys never normally, the T shot would never land. And I'd hit practice there early in the morning, late in the afternoon. And I'd, sometimes I'd have a divot, maybe 10 yards long, right on the edge and I could take dirt and put it back in there. So finally, when I was 17, I shot 29 in the high school tournament, Made a hole in one and a hole out on a par five for another eagle. And so they thought I could play. They sent me off to Augusta, Georgia. And I stayed with a buddy of mine, didn't have any money, and I qualified for this junior term. I came back to my hometown, and of course, we didn't have any money. My mom, she'd got a job down in a cotton mill, she was making 20 cents an hour. And my dad was a truck driver. And so now that 10 men got together, because they had no money to go to Durham, North Carolina. That's where the finals was. And you stayed at Duke University, but I got to get up there. And they got together, 10 of them, and gave me $10 a piece. And I bought the ticket up there on a train. I think it was $18.50 or whatever it was. And we played two matches a day for about, I think, four or five days, whatever it was, maybe five days. And I won the championship. Mm. And I'm holding the trophy. And all the pressure's out there and everything's going. And I don't know what's happening here. And the thing, but Miss North Carolina is standing there. And they says, "Miss Wattell, give the master junior a kiss. I'm 17, she's about 19. She bent over and kissed my lips, and a few minutes later said, do it another one while we can get some more pictures. Did it again. Now finally another <laughs> 20 minutes went by, you know, and everything. So now this time, just put your lips together and just hold them together while we get the pictures. So you're doing it too quick. Our lips just hung together. It came out on Golf World, or Golf Desert, whatever it was in the magazines, and it says, National Junior Champ and Miss North Carolina playing post office. <laughs> now, later on, I'm in a drive-in theater with a buddy of mine, and I didn't know, uh, I'm sitting in the back seat and he's in the front seat with this date. He says, Doug, isn't that you up there? I looked up, and they were making a movie about me all this time. and It was called The Boy Next Door. Huh. It was a 30-minute movie. Back in those days, the main feature, sometimes they had a 30-minute short about something other very unusual. It was about me winning this championship. And it came to my hometown in the movie. And all the little girls were running, hey, Doug. Hey, Doug. <laughs> uh, of course, you'd think uh, I didn't like that. I did, too. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I
0: was going to say, <laughs> it, it, it doesn't take a genius to figure out why you decided that golf was going to be
1: your pathway. <laughs> Boy, I, I enjoyed all of that. But that was my start. And I, whenever that I won the, that national championship, um, one of the largest tournaments in, in Georgia, I mean in the, in the U- U.S., I got a scholarship off the University of Florida. And the coach came up there the night I graduated and offered me everything to go down there. But I had won a lot of tournaments, OK? Mm-hmm. And the Southeastern amateur and all those things. and So I went off to University of Florida. And I went there for three years. And I won a lot of things. And we had a great teams and everything. But I had to make a decision. Do I play golf? I give up golf and study I majored in physical education I could you know, get a job driving a truck make more money than I could what I was doing mm. so I met a man from Canada named Brad Street which I named my son after later on when I got married and a son and he helped me a lot get started and everything and sent me over to play in a British Amateur and the guy found he was playing me he wouldn't even bring a change of clothes because he knew I was going to beat him because I was playing that good and I'm playing that small ball and I hit everything right over the stick right over the stick it hit and bounced over and everything and every time he said great shot mr doogie but through the grain through the grain i got beat the first match i came back to toronto he said doug there's a big tournament over there and go over in montreal there big uh beacons i think it's beacon fields country club biggest tournament in canada called canadian open Mm. i'm 22 years of age i never played a professional tournament before hogan and palmer and everybody sneezed out there well, I end up tying the offensive ball and I beat him in the playoff to win the first tournament I ever played in. I'm the only amateur that won the Canadian Open. Back then, when you turned pro, you couldn't receive any money for six months. You were neither a pro or an amateur. So I went down to South America with Palmer, Roberto, Devin, Vincenzo, and Tony and all that. I played in four tournaments. I was ninth, 7th, 2nd, and 1st. And I came back, and over the period of time, I finally now, all the companies wanted me to sign with them. Hmm. As I recall, I went w- with Wilson, which was Wilson, I do remember that. And uh, so I got the most money I think they paid anybody back in those days. I got $5,000 hmm. because they knew I could win because I just won. But I went on to win 20 tournaments, and there's only been, uh, they says. Three people that's turned pro in the last 40 years to win more than 20 tournaments, and that's Bill Mickelson, B.J. Singh and Tiger that turned pro in the last 40 years. But Palmer and those guys turned pro, you know, 50, mm. 55 years ago, whatever it was. But this game has been so good to me, but I would not have done any of that if it had not been the fact those 10 men gave me a $10 apiece and sent me off to qualify for the junior championship. And I don't know what I would have done in in school, you know, with not the education everything. I mean, would I have been driving a truck or working a service station whatever? I I don't know. But God just gave me that opportunity, and those men did. So I owe something of the back. I have worked so hard in the junior golf program to give back something up to the game. They say, when you die, the only thing you can carry with you is what you gave away. Hmm. And I'm trying to give these men, young men and young women an opportunity to go to schools where they will become successful. In return, they will go back like I did. Now, the last year I won the Masters. Adam Scott, he won my tournament one year. Steve Unkind won my tournament. Matt, uh, Billy Mayfair and Andy McGee, a lot of them won, you know, the Doug Sanders tournament. But this is just... And I had the opportunity of playing golf with presidents and one king all over the world. But one of the things that I have cherished more than as much as anything I have gotten, been able to get up in more fighter planes than any civilian. I got a letter from the Air Force with something and they said there would never be a civilian to have gone up in the many fighter planes. They don't even know how many guys in the military has ever been able to do that. But I got up in the Phantom, the F-4, the F-106. I got three traps, they call them the traps, of the uh, USS America and the F-14. I got up in the F-15, the F-16, the F-18, wow. the F-111, the B-1, the U-2. I'm on spacesuit. A replica of the Wright Brothers plane. And there was one plane that was called, I think, the C-5A or something other. But they had two Gatling guns together. You could shoot about 3,000 runs a minute. They had three guys with big shovels, shoveling shells out the window. Oh, my gosh. And I spent seven and a half hours on a nuclear sub. And they came back in and put the balls in the deck. And I knocked the balls out in the ocean and everything. But a life I've lived, you know, it has just been unbelievable. And I, one time I was talking to Kevin Costner. He says... Sanders, you're the only guy that I know. He said, I might even play Your Life Silver Free if I could play the real Doug Sanders. I said, if you did, we'd both get shot. <laughs> you know. <laughs> but being able to, you know, to run with the Rat Pack and all my life with Sinatra and Dean Martin and Sammy Davis and all those guys, Jack Lemon, and they all came and played my tournament. I stayed at their house, and they stayed at my house. And Sinatra one time was staying at the house. I said, Francis, they call you the trim of the board. Now, every year, this guy would give me a pool table cloth pool table, and had a cloth, and gave me an extra cloth, and I'd get Sammy Davis and John Dameron, Ingebert, Humperdin, Goulet, Vigdemont, Bob Hope, Sammy Davis, everybody to sign the cloth, and I'd auction off the table for junior golf. I had an extra cloth there. I said, I'll cut this down and get some of your board members. He said, okay, so he signed it. I cut it down about four feet, four feet. I'm playing golf with the president of Indonesia, President Sarto, he signed it. Um, Marcos of the Philippines signed it. Prince and Princess of Sweden signed it. Prince Bernard and his wife in the Netherlands signed it. And Romans was a couple of presidents after Marcos, and he signed it. And Henry Kissinger signed it. Margaret Thatcher and John Major signed it. And then Reagan, Nixon, Clinton, Carter, Ford, Reagan, Bush. the and cow. Signed it. So, you know, things like that I've been able to. What'd you do with it? I still have it in my house. Whoa. Wow. Uh, but I'll show you a picture of that, but you won't believe. It. But the things that I've got that I'm just going to leave back. Right now, I got everything in the in the uh, all storage, and I want to. What, I'm trying to find a place right now to put everything. But you would never believe in the world what I have and what I've. I spent oh, over hundred fifty thousand dollars just in postage all the time of getting the things. But I got it now in a safe. Well, not in a safe, but you know, in a storage. I'm looking for a place to put it. And right now, I, I have the idea now, maybe talking to the, maybe the mayor of, of Houston and maybe of Palm Springs and things of that nature. But what I've got in, in the paintings, I've got with all the guys that stood in front that won three majors or more, I have a full-size painting done of them with the golf bags in front. And that, there's about 12 or 13 of those guys. They've signed them. Yeah. Now I think there's 24 guys that I've counted of the bags that I have at the house that uh, they, I couldn't get them to sign it because it, uh, they're, they're dead, Bobby Jones, Walter Hagen. But I've got a painting done of all, most all of those guys. Hmm. But it just goes on and on in the golf bag signed by the guys that's won the the Super Bowl coaches and the quarterbacks that got the gloves. I got the bags signed by all the guys except maybe a couple of them, the last ones, except Vince Lombardi that has won the Super Bowl. But I'm always dreaming up something other different to do. And I just came up with the idea not too long ago. I went back and got the gloves of all the guys that has won the U.S. Open and the U.S. Amateur. They signed and put them in frames. There's six of us that won professional tournaments as an amateur. Freddie Haas, Frank Stranahan, um, Gene Littler, Scott Purplank, and Phil Mickelson, and myself. I got those gloves. Now, the project I'm working on right now is that I'm working on in Australia. I'm getting everybody there that's won a major. Peter Thompson won five majors. I'm going to send him the balls from all five places and a glove. And kill Nagel and all the people and put all those things in the frames. But it's just, I dream these things up. But to dream up something other, to think about getting it done is one thing. But getting it done is is the real thing.
0: That's the lesson of life, isn't it?
1: Oh, yes. But I've been able, you know, to reach around and get the things done and everything. But when you just see some of this, it's... Unbelievable. so. But I just want, again, to leave something of the mind. But I want my museum to be different than any other museum. Well, normally, when you have a museum, as I've seen, it has a certain amount of footage in it. And after it's full, it's full. That Maybe take a, ple- a piece out now and then put another piece in. But I want mine to be like this. So maybe this right here. Using my fingers here, maybe this is 2014. You're just it, showing that
0: it's going to grow, right?
1: Yeah, but maybe down here, this is 2020. This is 2030, 40, 50. You know, Mr.
0: Sanders is spreading his fingers apart, showing yeah. the growth of it. Yeah. You know, if if we could for a second, I want to go back to your childhood, where you were talking about learning how to chipping, how to chip and putt. Can you remember your first
1: set of golf clubs? Um, let me think. Well, they. I remember that they gave me a couple of clubs and everything when I was uh, when I was still caddying up there. Well, I signed with Wilson. Mm-hmm. So Wilson would have probably made the first set. So what was it like for you when you
0: went from being a kid that self-taught learning the game, few people take you under your wings, you learn the tenacity that it takes to, to be victorious in any situation. What was it like when you were around the legends of the game? Were they legends to you? Were they people that you looked up to?
1: Oh, yes. Yes, you know, but I, I just had to stay away because I felt like you know a small, you know, person to them. But again, whenever I won the Canadian Open as an amateur, they have a tournament in Las Vegas called the Tournament Champions, mm-hmm. and everybody won went out there. Well, I'm out there now, and I met Sinatra and Sammy Davis and John. Wayne. I met all the celebrities, and man, I don't know why, but that it was like I was their little son or something other. So Nosher says, well, I'll take him, you know, we'll go to Chicago. Let's go to, you know, this and that and the other. And Dean Martin says, no, we're going to go to Atlanta, Georgia and play. We're going to go to Chicago. <laughs> and Sammy Davis said, no. Sammy used to come to my house all the time, and Elder Bees called us. But you have to know what they saw in you. What was it? I, I don't know. I just laughed and cut up with them and a few drinks, and we laughed about this. Give him a blonde. No, he had a blonde last night. Give him another day. Give him a redhead tomorrow night, you know. I I couldn't I couldn't believe all this that was happening to me and I just loved it you know and it was just like I mean something other that you couldn't really think that was happening to you was something other. maybe you could read about that was a fantasy that would never happen but it was happening to me
0: when did you become so distinctive then with the fashion was that part of your of your youth where you didn't have these luxuries and
1: once you could afford them you were going to enjoy it well, i got to tell you something I did, and I don't know why I did it. Of course, I didn't have any money. But one time, how it ever happened, I don't know, but I had a pair of blue jeans, and they got sent to the uh, laundry. And they came back and had a crease in them. Man, I love that stuff, okay? Then I started <laughs> saving my money, and I think it was $0.35 cents to send them off, you know, and get and have them clean, laundry and everything with it with a crease and everything in them. Man, I thought I was, you know, wearing a tuxedo, you know, down the street. (laughs) So that started me on that thing. And then, but the first thing I did in in that, later on, I was the first guy to put the gloves together. And then a good friend of mine, he named his son after me, Lloyd Pitzer. He says, Doug, he says, "Uh, you got to get the shoes. And I met a company and everything, and they started making the shoes for me. Well, the shoes was the next big step of becoming a real top dresser and being the first one. I had the first one with the gloves and then the, then the shoes. But then this one guy told me, he says, Doug, in order for us to make you a pair of shoes, we have to buy enough material to make 600 pairs of shoes. Whenever they first started, had to make all this stuff. They just couldn't make enough stuff, you know, have one pair of shoes made. And then they started making all the shoes that other people, you know, would buy but now, whenever that they made the shoes, the pinks, levitants, purples, and greens, and everything, I had to find, basically a couple <laughs> companies did that. But one thing that they didn't do, they didn't have the dress shoes. So now all these shoes, now like, these shoes I have on here, pink, now they are, they are uh, that my wife, she would buy a lot of these things, they were the white ballets. Mm-hmm. Now that's the type you could die. So I would take them down and have a match to all of the my colored shoes, pinks, leopards, purples, greens and everything. So I couldn't go out and play in, in purple shoes with a purple outfit on and wearing black shoes or white shoes, you know, No, out to the golf course. So I had to have purple to go with it. So then that's the way I started doing all the <laughs> shoes. But now, that whenever I went on a tour, maybe I'm on the tour, you know, for four or five or six weeks at a time. So I normally, you know, carried 25, 30, 35 pairs of shoes. And I had one old, big old thing that I had that I could put Twenty-five pairs of shoes in. Holy Toledo! And then whenever I went in, I'd always put the shoes right along the the uh, the, uh, the edge of, of the of the walls in the bedroom at the hotels. So I went in, I could see what colors they were. You know, I could pick them out. Then I have my ex-wife now. It's one of my greatest friends, Scotty Sanders. We were married for twenty-seven years. She's one of the nicest ladies in the world, and she just has given her whole life to the church. She hadn't had a date in nineteen years. But she just married the church and I help her a lot But I help the kids go to school and everything. And but then she started then to seeing that my underwear was matched. My shoes. And I remember one time I was in Phoenix, Arizona, and I had to go in and get a flu shot or something other, and the doctor was gonna shoot me in my hip there and I Stick my pants down, and I got a little purple thing, but purple underwear. And he said, wait a minute, Doug, wait a minute. you got to stop right here. Got, I got to call my uh, my secretary in there. She loves purple. She said, <laughs> so I got to show her, you know, my purple underwear. <laughs> I said, well, maybe it's something other to this.
0: <laughs> At your height, how many pairs of shoes then did you have?
1: Oh, probably about 50, 60 pairs then. But then I had, the most I've had has been 251 pairs. <laughs> <laughs>
0: The pants, the, the sweaters, the shirts—you had everything.
1: Oh yes. Well, my—I told you, my ex-wife, she spent one hundred thirty-seven thousand redoing my attic, my closet, and, mm. and 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 everything. You wouldn't believe all the stuff. I got some pictures that I'll show you. Some little. But probably it was about oh, it was almost like from here to the end of the wall down there. Now this was all glass.
0: About thirty feet, thirty by
1: thirty. Yeah. <laughs> all all glass and you just moved the glass back and forth and all the shoes were facing you, all the top down all the way down and the sweaters and everything on the other side and then the big huge drawers
0: now With, what was that all about for you mr sanders well, what, i was, just
1: enjoyed the color was it yeah it wasn't a reflection of your youth when you couldn't have these things well i'm sure it was you know because but more i always wanted it's like anything else in life like I told you, I got tired of going up that road broke. But you've got to have that burning desire, that killing instinct, that will to win, to be more successful. You've got to work at it harder. But if you, you can't ever reach the point where you'll think, well, I'm there now. You'll think if you're there, no, going this way? No, you're always going down. If you're not going up, you're going down. It's pretty hard to stay right on there. So I wanted to keep doing something different all the time.
0: When you look back on your life now, though, what would you pinpoint as the pinnacle of your existence?
1: Well, I think most of that was... The burning desire to be successful and to look forward to making something happen. It's just like trying to get, having an idea of getting a golf bag signed by a president. I mean, you can think about having it done. Yeah. But, getting, but really getting it done is another thing. Sure. So that's the thing I was always able to do was to try to find a man a way to make it happen. And those are things you have to constantly work at. Mm-hmm. You can never get to the point, well, I'm there now. You know, no, you're going down if you just stop there. you got to keep that burning desire to keep working hard. And that's the thing that's driven me more in golf. And I practice and practice and practice. I mean, hours and hours, my hands would bleed. When I was a young man, I'd have to soak them in water in the morning to pr- break them back open and pick up a fork to eat. But that wasn't work to me. That was still pleasure. I mean, they would get so wet with the blood and everything, I'd have to put a a cloth around them to be able to hold on to practice. But again, I never looked at it as hard work. It was that desire to get a little bit better.
0: How much of your desire to get better and how much of your drive to succeed was
1: based on fear? Based on? Fear. Well, I didn't have the, the fear. I always seemed to have a... A vision, a way to look at something other a little bit more out there mm-hmm. to find a little bit better way to approach it. In a little different way. It's like whenever I went out there to play golf and I practiced, I never left the driving range until I hit two low hooks, two high hooks, two low fades, two high fades, two low shots and two high shots. Because if you had to use it in the first few holes of that day, it's still fresh in your mind. So you are always ready for it. And I think that's the thing that, you know, that drove me of always trying to think of something a little different. And I'd get it down where I could hook it. I'd walk up there, and I'd get to hook it 10 yards. i just set the club down, think 10 yards, boom, there. Because I'd done it so many times. And I think that's a thing that a lot of the kids today don't, they don't work hard enough. A lot, when I was on the tour, some of the guys would have their sons to come and see me and this and that and the other. And I think the thing that they realized... Right off the bat, you got to work harder. You got to work more and more. You got to set goals that are harder to reach, but are reachable. And once you reach them, you got to have another goal. Mm-hmm. Always have that goal out there to keep moving forward. And that's what makes a champion, that's what makes a good player, and a person to become successful.
0: What was it like for you once you started to compete in earnest against the likes of, at, at, by the time uh, you were out there, Mr. Hogan was older, but Sneed was still in full form? and all the other great players. It, in fact, let me ask you this question, if I may, sir. Did you ever have a conversation with Ben Hogan about your game? Did he ever give you any observations?
1: Well, during the time that I wanted to get some golf balls and gloves and everything signed, it was hard to get them signed by Ben Hogan. Mm-hmm. But I'd call his secretary, and she'd invite me up to have lunch. And I'd go up, I'd take a fly up to, from Dallas to Houston, I mean, from Houston to Dallas, go over to Fort Worth, and I'd have a town car to take me over for an hour. Either pick me up an hour later or stay there for an hour. And she'd order a sandwich or something other. And we'd go in, and I'd go into his office. He'd sign the stuff and want to talk. But it was very hard to talk to Ben. He wanted you to talk. He didn't want to, you know, talk about himself. He wanted to listen more to you about what you had to do and so forth. Ben only had, from what I could feel and see out of Ben, he only had one desire in life, and that was to win. He had that burning desire, that killing instinct, to win, and he worked hard at it. He didn't have time for other stuff. You know, he did. He just wanted to devote that time. And I had Andy Williams one time. Andy was a great friend of mine, and he come to a lot of the tournaments I wanted to go to, and Dean Martin and Bob Hope. Bob went every place for me. <laughs> and Sammy Davis and everybody was up in, uh, in um, Fort Worth and over there, Ben was playing the gin rummy at the club he always goes to, we're there. And I introduced him to Andy Williams. And Andy shook his hand he says, Mr. Hogan, I don't believe this, is this is one of the greatest pleasures I've ever had to shake Ben Hogan's hands. You know, I thought that was so so nice. You know, but Andy is shook hands with everybody, you know. How did Mr. Hogan react? Just shook his hand and said, thank you. You know, quiet. But, you know, Ben never told any jokes, you know, to make you laugh or anything like that. But he was a—he wanted to win. Let me tell you something And he did. Mm. He had that he had that instinct, and, and that's the only desire that I ever saw. And he worked in that direction constantly. Yeah. But I played with him at Fort Worth and everything. But And I went to Colonial one year and I played with Ben, but it almost made me cry that one time I'm playing with him, this was later in parts of his, his life, and he was over about a four-footer and get to, trying to get the club back, shake. and his hands would just shake so bad and he'd finally, you know, yeah hit it. But the last place he ever played was there uh, a Champions Country Club. Mm-hmm. I think it was on the fourth hole, of the par three, the not three balls in the lake. And that's when he quit. In
0: 1967, you were a
1: member of his Ryder Cup team. What was that like? <laughs> that's an experience I shall never forget in my life. Ben Hogan, some of the things that he said and did, he got us all together. He said there, and his voice raised his voice, Gentlemen, he said, I want you to know one thing. Being the captain of the Ryder Cup team, he says, one thing I do not want is my name on that losing cup. You do understand, don't you? Yes, captain. Yes, captain. He got up that night and he told everybody at the the dinner, he says, of all the great players I've ever seen in my life, he says, I've never seen a team this good. He said, now the other team said, he says, there's no team can beat this team. And tell him, you know, (laughs) we're better. (laughs) Well, he put so much pressure on us. He'd come up to you, and he'd stop you about 10 or 12 feet, put his hand up. He had a drink in one hand, a cigarette in another one. He'd take a puff of cigarette, blow it out, sip his drink, and he'd walk right up to you. Doug? Yes, sir. You will win today, won't you? Yes, Captain. Because you came in. He said, Doug, you won, didn't you? You want to tell him no? <laughs> no, you didn't want to tell him no. We'd be two down, three to go finish Eagle Birdie Eagle or something. The win went up. We kicked their ass, okay? (laughs) But we had to because we had the fear of us in in there because we did not want to tell Ben Ogan we lost. And that's one of the worst meetings I think the European team ever took, you know. Your your finishes
0: in in major championships are distinctive uh, 25 top 25s, 13 top 10s, and as I mentioned, second place four times. Uh, I realize it's it's virtually inevitable in any conversation that you have that, that the 1970 Open Championship will be mentioned. Your life is colorful in so many ways. I almost have a sense of guilt, of apology, of bringing it up. But what are your memories of the same?
1: Well, i got to tell you something. I have never, of all the great things, or the worst things, happened in my life. If I could take two or three of the best or two or three of the worst I've never thought of them together as much as I have missing that putt. I don't intend to but I just sometimes I wake up and think about well if I made that you know I'd have my own jet I'd had this, that and the other you know. I mean but all those things in your mind that, that one little putt that made all the difference and I blame myself for it because had to work so hard to get where I got and right at the last moment I changed my whole thoughts the first thing that I did the cat that used to get there for Tony Lima Tony was one of my best friends and I was going to be on a plane with him when it went down it was on my birthday and right at the last minute I changed my mind when I talked to one of the PGA officials and so I was with my son and I was going to went over to get on the plane with him and so I decided not to, and the guy said, well, come on, Doug, come on back over the house. We'll have a birthday party for you. And I Why went. did you
0: change your mind for that?
1: Well, I was going to go down and play in a in a one-day tournament in, um, I think, in Ohio um, for, I think it was Jack Nicklaus' tournament. And I decided, because my, my hand had burnt my fingers, I was showing my son how not to shoot baller rockets, and one of them backfired on me. Oh. And it got worse, and I told the official that, that I wasn't gonna. I didn't think I could go down, and I think they wrote an article saying that I wasn't gonna come down. And later on, um, I was talking to one of the guys, the company I was representing. He said, "Doug, if you could go down and maybe meet the governor, you know, it'd be easier for us to maybe get in." And I said, "Well, I'll try to do that." But now, I, I, the last day, my finger was so bad, and I saw the official as I was going in to get my clothes and everything, and I told him that I wasn't gonna. You ever go? He said, Doug, they've already wrote an article, said you're coming, you know. Mm. And I said, well, and my son said, come on, Dale, let's go with Tony. And that's when Tony had chartered the plane. That's when the, the airlines were on strike. And um, I said, well, no, well, I better, well, you know, Doug, if you don't go, you know, you you already told him you were going to come. You told me you were going to, I said, well, I said, no, I want to try to come. And finally the guy said, well, come on, Doug, I'll take you over the house. We'll have a little birthday party for that. Went over there with him and, Two hours later, they came in to and told me the plane went down and no survivors. Wow. So that's how close that you are in that thing. Indeed. You know? But let's go back to that 18th green that that day. Well, at, uh, what I did. How long was the putt? Well, first of all, let me tell you what happened to me. All right. It was a series of one after another one. But the first thing, the first match that was struck, the caddy gave me a white tee to me always represented five. Just, the, you know, something other Why do you have those loads? I don't know. Well, you mark your ball. You know, if the penny was turning your heads or tails, you know, this, that, and the other meant that you know that you're going to make a three or four or whatever, or no. <laughs> so, this, this caddy, caddy for Tony, gave me a tea. He said, Doug, use this in memory of Tony. It had his name on it. It was a white tea. I, didn't want to use it. I said, Well, yeah, but I use it for Tony anyway. I had a good tea shop up there. Now, that's the first time I'd use these clubs. And I was, I think, 87 yards away. That's what the kid had told me, but it looked a little strange. And I said, Well, I'll just walk up there and see. And I'm thinking about, too, having, I'm making it easier for the press, you know, to talk about, well, now Doug is walking up there to be sure, you know, got the right club to be sure, you know, something that doesn't happen. I walked up and walked back. I hit the shot, but knocked it about 25 feet past the hole. Well, and that set the whole thing. Now, when I knocked the ball down, I'm playing with Trevino. Leaves about 10 or 12 feet and knocks it down about three feet. And somehow I remembered that walking down. Now, here's all the things that's going on in my mind about winning the tournament, this and that and the other. And I remembered about the guy, who was it, George Lowe or somebody told me, he said, When you got a little short putt, says, so Just go ahead and knock it in rather than mark it and, you know, taking the time and everything. So I thought about that. And I said, I go ahead, not thinking about the fact of marking it. And until I, until I was standing over it, I said, Well, I should have marked that and let uh, Torino put. No, you've been over it too long. Go ahead and put it now. And I looked down and I saw it looked like a little piece of um, dirt, which is where the sun had burnt the top of the piece of grass there. Mm-hmm. And I raised back up and they laughed over here behind me. I said, Well, I'll battle them last. I get back over said, Well, You should have let Lee put. No, you've been here too long. Go ahead and put. It. Well, go ahead. No. Boom. <laughs> Missed it. So that's, you know, all of that together. Rather than, now Kenny Steele has said he told me he was sitting with Hogan watching this on television. And Hogan said, Back away, back away, Doug, back away. Because he's looking, you know, seeing me going through all of the motions. And it was just one thing after another one. And I I missed the putt. No one's fault except my own. I set myself there and I broke my, my. Thoughts about just staying right on right on track. Yeah. And continue it until it's over with. Could you talk to us about the playoff? Well, the playoff <clears throat> I had one of the greatest shots out of a bunker I've ever hit in my life at the seventeenth hole. And uh, Jack Nicklaus is one of the greatest bunker shots he's ever seen. I'm kinda of a little bit on a down slope. Now I'm looking up there and I can visualize this. I've got about this much room—about three inches. Yep, three or four inches there to go over it. If I'm if I'm six inches over the top of it, I'm back in the in the uh, the road hole. Mm-hmm. there. if I'm three inches short, I'm still in the bunker. And I looked at it and looked at it and looked at it. I said, "Now it's getting bigger. It's getting bigger." Now it's perfect. Go, boom! Now I knocked it over there, about two or three feet. No. The and then on the 18th hole, Jack. I had a good tee shot, 18 of winds behind him, and I put it about, oh, I don't know, 10 feet off the edge of the green. And Jack took this big old yellow sweater off. I said, look out, Doug, he's boy, he's going after your butt here, you know. And he knocked it right over the green at 18, the winds And that grass is normally, you're going to go right underneath it, big grass is laying down, hmm. but it landed up right on top of it. And he chipped it down, I chipped my ball up close. And, ended up making my putt, and Jack made about a 12-footer. And then whenever he made the 12-footer to beat me, he took his club and threw right up in the air. And I looked around, and I didn't see the club. Only place it's going to be is over my head, and I'm going like this. And Jack's trying to get his hands over top of my head to you know, keep me getting hit. I said, "Jack, it's not bad enough to beat me, but to hit me upside the head. You know? <laughs> I said, Damn! What what else am I do I have to do to you, you big boy? You know, <laughs> I'm finished with this. <laughs> Leave me be." You know? <laughs> But they says, Doug says, you'll always be remembered for missing that putt. And they'll always be, you know, you'll be famous for that. Now, you won't believe this. There's probably, I'd say, at least six people ask me, who who won the tournament that year? They don't even know that Nicklaus won the tournament, but they realize I missed that putt. They says, you'll always be famous for missing that putt. I said, let me tell you one thing. Give me the 150 or 200 million I'd have made over my lifetime about it. Now, I don't give a damn if you know me or not. You know? yeah. <laughs> but I do care, you know. Does but, it haunt you? Well, it still does. And, and you know, I just kind of brush it away, but it's there. It's not like something other, you know, that just hangs on to me a lot. It's not like the guy that went to the, see the doctor and he says, Doc, you got to help me. He says, I, I got a feeling that there's somebody underneath my bed all the time and I, I have a hard time sleeping. He said, well, I can help you. He says, it's going to be about $85 for each visit, but you've got to come twice a week. And he says, probably take me at least three or four months to be able to really get it, you know, where you don't believe he's underneath the bed. And the doctor didn't see him, you know, at all. He didn't go back. And finally, he sees him three or four months on on the street. He said, why didn't you come back? He said, well, $85 twice a week, you know, for three or four or five months is a lot of money. And he says, and I I got it done for $10. He says... How did you do that? He said, well, I was having a drink with my buddy and bought him a drink and was telling him about the story. And he said, well, look, only thing you have to do is just cut the legs off the bed and nobody can crawl underneath it. He said, that's what I did, <laughs> cut the legs off. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so that's what I got to do about, you know, missing that putt. I got to cut the legs off the bed where that memory won't be underneath it.
0: Every life, Ms. Mr. Sanders, has peaks and valleys at one point, you've been quite honest about this. At one point, you considered
1: taking your life. What happened? Well, I had a problem in my neck. It was called torticollis. And they didn't do it in the operation in the United States on it. It was only in Canada. And they'd only been doing this operation for four or five years. And I started out, I think the telephone was one of the problems I had because for probably... Oh, 10, 15 years, I'm always driving a car on the thing, and I always had the phone underneath my ear, driving a car. My head bent to the left. and Then I was, they said I was going to have to wear contacts, and the doctor said I couldn't wear contacts. So I'm wearing glasses, and then whenever I would go back, my head would move a little to the left, and then I'd have to make it move more because the glasses, I was letting the glasses catch the edge of the ball. So then it started moving more and more, and then any touch would stop it. But then it got worse and worse. Mm-hmm. And then I'd have to hold it up and you know, like this to talk. Yeah, and with, with your hand on your chin like that. Yeah, yeah. but the, the pain got so severe, my head would hit the pillow for an hour or something if so I could go to sleep. Mm-hmm. And I got to a point I couldn't live like that. But I didn't want anyone to know, you know, that if I got so bad and I was trying to find some way to get some help, and it got just really, really bad, and I, I just decided that I couldn't. Li- it was going to get better. It had to just get worse. Mm-hmm. And I talked to somebody about if I needed to get my life taken, could he do it? What the price would be, and everything else. And I, we had it all worked out. And I told him I was going to go to Canada. And I don't. But see if I can get the operation done. If it didn't work, he said, well, call me. Call the same way you did to reach me, and they'll get in touch with me. So I went to Canada to meet with this Dr. Dr. Bouvier, and it was the most unbelievable thing I'd ever seen in my life. These people had a room almost as big as this, full of people, and they had their heads stuck up, and one guy in a mirror, because his head's like this, and he had to walk. In look at the whole up, mirror up look, look, look straight up but everybody's heads down like this and everything it was just unbelievable the pain that they were in and everything mm-hmm. and he told me he said Doug I think I can maybe help you but I'm I'm way behind he says you have to come back and spend a week I spent, went back he called me months later I went back and spent a week with him and he said but he says I'm about two two and a half years behind in medicine but I'll try to get you in so that's, in the meantime, that's the time I met this guy. his guy's name was Tony to see about doing me if it didn't work. And then it was a few months later that I had to wait, and the doctor finally called me and told me to come tomorrow. It took him seven and a half hours to get me down through here in the back. Mm-hmm. But when they took the plug out of my mouth, my throat was too small. I died. I was in a coma for 10 days. I lost about 28 pounds in two months. And I couldn't breathe. And the machine would beat my heart eight times before my heart would beat twice. But here I am now. Look at this. I am so lucky. The only thing I knew I can't turn my head very far, but at all. But that's as far I can turn it. But at least I'm survived. I didn't get on the plane with Tony, Lima. You know, so many wonderful things have happened to me, and I'm just so much indebted to all the things and God has just given me more ways to be able to do things and I am so blessed. And, and that's one of, another reason. I mean, I've got so many reasons why that I should give back to the kids and give them some help. And I just hope, and maybe this thing here can help me a little bit about asking some of the guys on the tour today, I've got all the stuff I'm leaving to Junior God. And some of the managers don't know who I am. You know, at my age, and they're, you know, young people. And I got one guy, I won't tell you who it is, I call him. And the things that I do, like for an example, every time they win one of the four majors. I have 51 years, I got the four gloves, the guys that win the four majors in the frame. But some of them now, they don't want to send it. One guy wrote me a note that says, Doug, if you send any more, we're not going to send them back. But they don't really know who I am, what I'm trying to do. But this is not for Doug Sanders. This is to leave back for a legacy with these people's names on it. Yes. I don't have my name on, you know, all the things out there. I never won a major. But I did lose. One year, if I would a bird the 16th hole at the Masters, I would have won there. And I lost the US Open by stroke, lost the British Open by stroke, but there was another guy tied there. Um, then I lost the P.J. by stroke, but there were some other people tied in that as well. And I lost the British Open in a playoff I stroke. Mm-hmm. But so I could have, you know, easily if I'd have birdied the 16th hole at the um, uh, when we played the the British Open when Jack won what 56 at was it Muirfield I think 66 birdied, yeah yeah you know, if I birdied if I'd have parred the 11th hole I'd have won the Masters there if I just made a par there if I'd have parred the, the last hole at St Andrews I'd have won the British Open. But so a lot of those things were so close, I could have easily won all four majors.
0: Well, the world needs to know about Doug Sanders. The last question I'll ask you today, sir, is this. If your life is to be made into a
1: movie, what's the title of that movie? <laughs> um, I don't know. Maybe The the Life of the Peacock of the Fairways or something other, you know? I <laughs> <laughs> bet but the thing that I, the thing that would happen in that movie, is I see it. Of course, I'm not a producer or anything, but I think you'd have to have different people. You'd have to have some kid, you know. Whenever I was going to, going out there, six and seven years of age, looking, you know, for golf balls and everything, and then the person, whenever I won the national junior when I was seventeen, and then maybe that person could be the same person that up to I won the. Uh, and even open as an amateur, then another person could pick up when I was on the, on the on the tour. But uh, I think it could be done. But I think a lot of good things, you know, you could see in there. It'd be a different thing about, you know, the planes I flew in and things of that nature, and playing golf with presidents and one king. And but you know, I think I just think back sometimes that how fortunate I am to have found a game called golf, and that's the only sport if you ever look at it, that you can never play and talk to your people at the same time. You can't talk to anybody when you're playing football. You know, you're gonna throw a pass and you can't say, hey, how's your buddy today? You know, throw the pass. <laughs> uh, um, a basketball, a or basketball, or baseball anything, big golf. It's the only sport to, Carl Lewis ran, he came down one morning. I had Doug, uh, Willie Nelson celebrity, Willie Nelson, Doug Sanders' celebrity fun run. It was a 5K at my tournament. And Carl Lewis is riding down with us that morning. He's going to run in it. He says, Doug, today is history for me. I said, why is that, Carl? He says, this is the first 5K I've ever run in. I said, yeah, and didn't win it either. <laughs> but now, what about, I could give Carl some strokes. It could come to the last hole, the 18th hole, and maybe a three-footer, I've got to beat him. Maybe he's got a three-footer to beat me. But now, what are we going to do? We're going to run a 100-yard dash. What is he going to spot me, 95 yards? <laughs> I mean, there's not much contest in that. But you do have that in, in golf. So that's reason the reason that people, as you get older, a guy does when you get 60, 65, 70, 80 years old, nobody calls you up and says, hey, you want to go kick some balls today? You want to play basketball? Now let's hit some baseball. Let's play golf. Okay. It's a great sport. And it'll be there and on and on. But the kids today, they got a wonderful chance out there. But we grew up. up, everybody want to be a hero in school. If you're a little taller, basketball. Ten points, hero. Weighed 175 pounds. Two touchdowns hero and and then baseball a little stronger you know two home rounds hero but in golf only people play golf were misfits weighed you know nine and a half and 130 pounds 135 pounds they weren't big enough fast enough tall enough to play other sports and they played golf but today they seem today how valuable that can be mm-hmm. it's another life out there today and it's a life that you've got forever. It's not like you play football and baseball. You have to give up over a certain period of time. You can play this forever. It's just a great thing. It's a great thing for the kids to get started, too, because they can get out there and get mix and mingle with other kids. A lot of them today, they go in, sit on the couch, read the paper, and get on the machine, and that's where they stand, but they, go, they can't go out there and talk to people. But if you're out there playing golf with your buddies, your buddies, you can talk about the things happen, and It's a great, great sport. Mr. Sanders, thank you for all that you have meant to the game of golf, and thank you for your time, sir. Thank you. It's my pleasure, and let me just say one thing. Thank God for what it's done for me.
0: Wow. I don't even know what else to say other than, wow. I do want to remind everybody, as you could tell, I put off all of our our sponsor's reads until the end here, so I am going to ask you quickly to to please remember benhogangolf.com. Log on there and see the new icon. Forged blade irons, they are absolutely beautiful. See the PTX Pro irons, a new driver, their wedges, their putters, all of it you can find on there. And you'll see why their direct relationship as a micro manufacturer with you is a special one indeed. French Lick Resort, it is so good that we're bringing listeners there. That's the highest accolade I think the Fairways of Life show can give a destination to say this is so cool and so much fun. We want to come there with our own family, and that is all of you. Fairwaysoflife.com slash French Lick for more details on that tour edge golf. They are special. Uh, One, you know, if you're, if you're going to stand out from the crowd, how do you do it? You do things like, Oh, a lifetime warranty. Think about that for a second, a lifetime warranty, the best in the world are playing their products, not merely because they're ambassadors, You've got people that are not part of their paid ambassador staff. You've got people that are playing them because they're the best. TourEdge.com for you to find clubs with all of the latest technology without having to refinance your mortgage in order to afford to buy the product as well. Bridgestone Golf, their new reactive urethane cover, has reinvented the golf ball. No longer do you have to choose between spin or distance. You can have them both in one ball. Just log on to BridgestoneGolf.com and check it out. And finally, uh, not least though, Ireland.com. I am so proud to represent Ireland.com and I do it with all of my bias inherent and it's with good reason. It is the best Lynx golf in the world. Let's start planning on this today. Let's go. Let's take a couple trips there when when all this stuff blows over. Why not? Ireland.com to get you up to speed. Folks, thank you so much for your company. Please have a good day. Be safe out there. Take care of each other. Tour Edge continues their meteoric rise in 2020. Over 90 different Tour pros have put Tour Edge into their bag, including staffers Scott McCarran, Tom Lehman, Tim Petrovic, and Duffy Waldorf. TourEdge makes clubs for every player type, and they set themselves apart with their unprecedented 48 hour delivery on custom fit orders and by offering a lifetime warranty and by building their clubs in the good old US of A. Visit touredge.com to learn more about their new clubs for 2020. TourEdge, pound for pound, nothing comes close. Come to where history meets luxury at the family friendly French Lick Springs Hotel, where there is something for everyone It's no secret that FootJoy Flex has been one of the best-selling shoes in the game for the last few years. You can literally wear these things anywhere. Well, they now have a version that's completely redesigned and fully waterproof. It's called the Flex XP. You can wear these to and from work, hit a bucket of balls at the range, play 18 of them, wear them into the clubhouse or out to dinner. Many have tried this type of versatile shoe in the past, but leave it to FootJoy to elevate the category. Now you can start flexing with the all-new Flex XP. Learn more about FlexXP at FootJoy.com. If you listen to the wind, you can hear it. That's Ireland calling you home. Home to the greatest Lynx golf courses in the world, defined by soaring dunes, undulating fairways, venerable bunkers, and whimsical green complexes. From Royal Portrush in Northern Ireland, Site to the 2019 Open Championship to Ballyliffen, La Hinch and Ballybunion numbering among the Lynx Golf Masterpieces awaiting your golfing sojourn Come home to Ireland and enjoy the most incredible golf experience of your life Get started at ireland.com Boeing Golf truly offers an unrivaled Michigan golf vacation experience. Just log on to BoeingGolf.com and take in all the splendor that is a golf experience unlike any other. TheGolfTravelGroup.com is a luxury golf tour operator that specializes in custom travel itineraries to Scotland, Ireland, England, Wales, Iceland, New Zealand, Australia, South Africa, and more. Guaranteed advanced tea times, incredible accommodations, airport meet and greet services, private guided tours, and private drivers, all in luxury vehicles. And they have a staff that's been doing it forever. TheGolfTravelGroup.com. Take your game to the Max this spring with the all-new Tour X golf shoe from FootJoy. Fully loaded inside and out. Tour X delivers max stability, max control, and max comfort. So you can launch it past your buddies. The Tour X wraps your foot in coziness with an ortho light impressions fit bed and a foam collar around the heel. Ensuring max in-shoe comfort and support. Tour proven by players like Kevin Kister and Rafael cabrera Bayo. Experience max performance for yourself with the all-new Tour X. Shop now at FootJoy.com. What's your bucket list destination? Where have you always wanted to go? What's the number one thing that holds people back from doing that? BenHoganGolf.com is where you can go to see the beautiful product that's being produced right now, bearing the name of the legend. You know, when he founded the original company in 1953, Ben Hogan said he did it, quote, to design and manufacture the best golf clubs in the world, end quote. And that is exactly what their mantra is today. Only it's going directly to you, not through retail stores. So they're saving that 40%, 50% retail markup. You can get the best and you can get it directly from their master craftsman. Log on to BenHoganGolf.com now.
1: Reinvented.
0: It's time for you to discover Stream Song, a new kind of resort that takes the everyday ordinary to the absolutely extraordinary.